Our Old Testament reading is from Ezra 4, 1 to 5. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of families and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of King Esarhaddon of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of families in Israel said to them, You shall have no part with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and they bribed officials to frustrate their plan throughout the reign of King Cyrus of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water, gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to co keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say four months more then comes the harvest? <clears throat> but I tell you, look around you. See how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Good morning, everyone. It is delightful to be here with you. Uh, participating in what was our summer series that's going into the early part of the fall series of this mixed tape, taking familiar biblical stories and taking a new look at them, uh, making sure that we don't keep those Bible stories anchored in perhaps the old version of the story that we've heard or the children's Bible version of what we heard, but that we're bringing new eyes and new questions to the text. And a part of what we did, especially this summer, was to spend a lot of time kind of asking ourselves, how do we study the scriptures? And I just want to draw attention to the reflection quote that's at the front of the bulletin on page three. This is Janine Brown. She's amazing. I love her. She's a New Testament scholar. And she writes this, when we ignore or minimize the importance of original context, our default position will be to fill in the textual backdrop with our own social context. 
In other words, we will assume that things in the biblical context are just like they are in our own. And this can't be more true than with this particular story. And so I am going to bring the stuff I love, which is all the context and the map and all of the things, because I think it's really important for us to take a new look at who this woman is and what is John's point in actually telling us this story. So we're going to keep asking this question, where are we? And that means where are we geographically? Where are we historically? And where are we literarily? Like what is going on? And lucky for us, this is in the Gospel of John. And we just did a series on John. We did that in the spring right before everyone took off for the summer. But just to, since many weeks have been in the gap, just to refresh your memory about John and the Gospel of John, we were focused on the seven signs in John, but John also uses seven discourses. John anchors his gospel in the book of Genesis and in the book of Exodus, and he uses those as big themes. And he tells us at the end of the gospel, after the seven signs and the seven discourses, the purpose of those 14 things that he chooses to do is so that we, the reader, recognize Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus as the Son of God so that when we believe in him, we have life. And so that has to be the governing context for this story because this chapter in John is the second of the seven discourses that are in the Gospel of John. So that has to govern the way that we are reading and interpreting what is going on. So given the things that John likes to talk about, I am going to argue that this chapter is actually about light versus darkness. It's about perception and understanding and it is about discipleship and witnessing. Now, I think my biggest problem and the biggest hurdle today is going to be what we, the church, have assumed and read into the character of the Samaritan woman. And we have done this from as early as the third century, from the context, the European context in this Roman empire context. And I would like to challenge some of those assumptions that we have. Uh, because when we read in these assumptions, we fail to see the things John is actually telling us. And I would rather us start with John and then move forward, right? So to prove my point, if I were to give you 10 seconds, 15 seconds, and just write down three adjectives that pop into your head when you think of this story, when you think of the Samaritan woman, who is she to you in your imagination from what you've heard? How old is she? What is her profession? What's her role in the community? And hold on to those three descriptive words. We're going to move on and go first to really, again, understand what's happening. We have to know who we're dealing with. And John is telling us that we're dealing with the Samaritans. And there is this Samaritan versus Jew conflict that everyone understood, but maybe we need a little bit of help figuring out. So if you want to turn to your map that is actually embedded in the bulletin on page 19. And just quickly, let me just show you geographically where we're at. 
So you see Jerusalem at the very bottom of the map and Sychar towards the top. There is a very faint pink line because it was much thicker on my computer screen when I drew it in and then it turned out super tiny when I printed it, so sorry about that. Uh, but if you were to go halfway up that pink line and draw a very generous circle around the word Sychar, going all the way to the east to the Jordan River, and then almost to the west to the coastal plain, and just that general circle right there, that's the region of Samaria. Sychar, right in the middle of this region, is where this woman is from. It is right next to an important town called Shechem. And Shechem is nestled right in between two twin mountain peaks, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Those two mountains and the city of Shechem are saturated with patriarchal and matriarchal narratives. When you read Genesis, they are there all the time. So this is a biblically rich uh, area. It's a land that holds on to deep memories. And what is important to know is for all of us, right, when we have these narratives of historical events, it's the way we retell these narratives that start to form our identity. So when we talk about this question, who are the Samaritans, it's important to go, well, the Samaritans have a version of who they are. And the Jews have a version of who the Samaritans are. So I'm going to tell you who the Samaritans say they are from their own perspective. This is how they talk about themselves. So they would look at the land where they are, this area around Shechem and Ebal and Gerizim, and they have a Samaritan Pentateuch. It is very similar to the Jewish, the Hebrew Pentateuch that we have, very similar. So they share the same stories with the Jews of Genesis through Deuteronomy. And when you read just those books, Shechem is everywhere. It's the heart of worship. Abraham is there. He sets up altars. And Jacob is there very often. Jacob's sons are there. There's like all of this movement. Joseph's bones are buried in Shechem. So everything points here. And the book of Deuteronomy gives the people instructions that when they go into the land, so after coming out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, and they go into the land, they ratify the covenant with God at Ebal and Gerizim. And the Samaritan said, we are those people. We are the descendants of those ancestors. That is the story we belong to. Those people who will later call themselves the Jews, they are the people that broke off from us around the time of Eli, the high priest, when they took a tabernacle and they went to Shiloh and Shiloh became the heart of worship. So in early days, there was a separation, but the Samaritans say we have always preserved who we are as God's authentic people of God. Now, the Jews tell a different story, and this is one that we might be a little bit more familiar with because we have the Jewish writings, the Israelite writings, right? And so the, the Jews would say of the Samaritans, well, long ago when there was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by Assyria in 722. And the Assyrians took that northern kingdom of Israelites and dispersed them throughout the Assyrian empire. And they replaced them with five foreign groups of people. This is in uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, if you want to go back and read. Which is, it's actually a really interesting story because there's like 
wild animals that come out of the forest. And anyway, I will get sidetracked on the fun of that narrative. All to say, those people end up learning how to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Judeans. And they worship him, but they also hold on to some tangential worship practices of their own gods. But they intermarried with some Israelite women. We also know, so southern kingdom of Judah goes into exile by Babylon. When they start to return back, this is when we get like that um, Ezra passage that we met. And so we see in Ezra, these returning people out of exile are looking at their neighbors to the north and seeing them as enemies of their own identity because they saw themselves as we are the ones that had the temple in Jerusalem. We are the descendants of King David. We are the true people of God who experienced punishment in Babylon, but we have come back and we are the true identity. And so now you have a conflict of identity, two people groups saying, we are the authentic people of God. And I would argue that is the real question that is put on offer throughout this chapter. It's a question of who are the authentic people of God? Now, what about the Samaritan woman? Because this is the tricky bit. And if I were to write down three adjectives, these are the ones I would use. She's educated. Maybe not like PhD education, but she is educated. She understands the cultural context where she is, and she leans into a pretty dense theological conversation with Jesus. I would say that uh, she's also engaged. She doesn't just peel off from the conversation when it gets challenging. She stays and asks challenging and probing questions of Jesus and doesn't let him get away with anything. It's interesting because John, who tends to report these seven discourses through his gospel, often Jesus has an interaction with someone and then he goes into a long monologue, which is one of the discourses. But in this case, he enters into conversation she has more words recorded in conversation with Jesus in any of these discourses than any of the other ones in the rest of the gospel. So something to pay attention to. She's also perceptive because in the course of the conversation, she identifies him first as a Jew. I think that's in verse nine. She says, ah, you're a Jew. And they continue in conversation. And then we get later on to verse 19, and she's like, oh, you're a prophet. And then we get later on, and she goes, oh, you're the Messiah. So her perception is changing through the course of this conversation. Did anyone else write down those three adjectives for her by chance? Anyone? Okay. That's kind of what I thought. Now, we have to address, before we get into the story, we have to address the elephant in the room, which is the thing people have focused on forever and ever and ever and read modern assumptions into it. And this is the issue of seven marriages, or uh, no, that would be too many, five marriages, which is still a lot, <laughs> actually. And everyone points to that is a lot. So it is awkward, and I may not convince you of how I think of this, but I want to put a few things out on the table for you to consider. 
it is, it's a lot of marriages. But one thing to be super aware of is ancient marriages were never between two individuals based on love. Ancient marriages were always family affairs. One family coming together and creating relationships with another family. And often, if it was the woman's first marriage, she would have been very young and her first husband significantly older than her. We have so many records of this all over the place. So it's not unlikely or unusual that her first one or two or maybe even three husbands died of natural causes for any number of reasons, right? So that's not too weird. The woman can divorce someone, this is true. However, because marriages are such a public thing and it's not based on love and it's not based on feelings, the idea of her divorcing like multiple husbands and then being able to remarry is a totally far-fetched idea. Maybe she divorced one guy, but her community would never stand for that to be a habit of hers. The other thing to know is, again, these marriages are these big community things and these big complex um, kind of covenants that are being made. And in an ancient marriage, dowries were often involved. And a dowry was supposed to be part of um, a backup plan, maybe for the woman in case her husband did die. There was a little bit of money to care for her and for her children. But the community would have expected her, especially if she is still of childbearing age, they would expect her to go and get married, remarried, and fall under the umbrella of another patriarchal household so that that patriarch or her husband could care for her and any children that she had. Now, here's the thing. When we get to the, the man you are living with now is not your husband, well, there's all kinds of reasons that could be. We don't actually know if she had kids, so she could be living with an older son or any other male of her family who has kind of taken on the ownership of providing for her. Or if she is not of childbearing age anymore, so now let's put her in 40, 45, also in age, most people don't assume that she is when we're reading assumptions, but when we read in the text, we're like, she really could just be older. And if she's not of childbearing age, and if there is no dowry to provide for her, she can still be living with a guy, but with no exchange of a dowry, they're not officially husband-wife. The community would have seen them as husband and wife, but it just means the husband doesn't have financial obligation for any descendants that she might have. So that could be. So as we kind of clear the air of a lot of assumptions that we read into the text, and as we spend so much time focusing on sin and shame, I'm going to argue that's not the point of the conversation. Because again, the Gospel of John has recorded several conversations Jesus has with people where he calls out their sin in particular and talks about forgiveness and talks about repentance and none of those words are in this text. So we should pay attention to what John is saying, not what we say of the text. 
Okay, so according to the way John is writing this, it is just after Passover. So this is in the springtime, and Jesus and the disciples have been in Jerusalem. What is interesting is the Samaritans celebrate Passover as well. And so both groups of people are just coming off of this holiday when they're thinking of redemption, of being God's people living in the land of their inheritance. So it's a potent time frame for Jesus then to return to Galilee. And in verse chapter four, or nope, that doesn't make any sense, but it still works because it's chapter four, verse four. It says, but he had to go through Samaria. And for anyone who understands context, they go, no, he didn't. Because again, look at the map on page 19. If you go from Jerusalem and again, a very faint line, see if you can pick it out. There is a road that goes from Jerusalem down into the Rift Valley and touches Jericho, crosses the Jordan River and goes north right next to the Jordan River until you get to Galilee. That is the most common route that Jews would take. The Jews of Galilee, when they were going to Jerusalem for the festivals, they often went that way. And we can see Jesus and the disciples more often than not on that road throughout all of the writings in the gospels. There is another road. It goes right along the spine of the hill country, connecting Jerusalem up to Sychar and eventually up to Galilee. But Jews didn't often take that unless they were in a hurry. It is the shorter road to take, but it pushed you right through Samaritan territory where you were never quite sure what kind of alteration that you would, you would enter. And so for John to say Jesus had to pass through Samaria, it's not he had to because that's the only road. The having to has to come from a different, a different reason, which maybe it's because he knows there's an important encounter he needs to have. So he comes to a Samaritan city and look at all this good patriarchal language here. He goes to Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well is there, right? We know we are getting at the heart of anchoring into patriarchal stories and who gets to claim this narrative as their own. So this woman comes at about noon. Now we have put so much weight on this time of day of her showing up at noon. And it, we wax eloquently about it being an indication of her shame and being ostracized from the community. And there is very, very little data to support that. In fact, if we just use the Bible itself, and I'll go back to the books of the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we have people showing up at wells all the time. Maybe not at noon, but often in the afternoon. And I mean, Rebecca, we love Rebecca. Rebecca shows up in the afternoon, right? So this, this whole idea that they, the women only went first thing in the morning and she's avoiding women is also something that we should not read into the text. And there's Josephus mentions as well of people going later in the afternoon. We don't know, is this her first time to the well? Is it her third time to the well? We don't know. However, I would say this detail is important, just not for the reasons we normally assume. Again, I'm going to point to the fact that this is the Gospel of John, and light and darkness are big themes in John. 
And noon is right in the middle of light. And in the chapter just before this one, Jesus meets with Nicodemus in the middle of the night. When it was dark, Nicodemus came. And in that conversation, in that discourse, Nicodemus has a hard time figuring out what Jesus is saying. And this woman at noon in the middle of light comes to full recognition of who Jesus is. So we go on. She identifies him as a Jew. He's asking for water. She's like, what on earth? Why are you even talking to me, right? We are different people and we have a conflict between us. And Jesus makes mention, if you understood who I was, you would be asking me for water because I can give you living water. Now for all of us who have not just the Pentateuch, but we have other Israelite writings. So the Psalms and the prophets, anytime someone starts to pull up images of living water, you start your, your mind synapse starts going because all through the Hebrew Bible, God is living water. And so we see Jesus kind of playing with this self-identification, revealing himself as the son of God to her. But she doesn't have those texts, right? So she is not responding in the way people respond to Jesus in chapter 7 when he makes a similar claim but makes it in Jerusalem, a very Jewish context. So she's kind of missing some of the clues that he's throwing down. And she keeps playing with like, or thinking through this as, um, as physical water. And you see here, she says, are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, right? She's, this is our possession. This is our well, this is my story and I'm connecting to Jacob. So Jesus keeps pushing on this water theme and she still doesn't get it until Jesus says this, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, you have had five. And the one that you have now is not your husband. And I argue and I am convinced, but I don't know if you will go with me on this. I don't think this is to shame her for her context in life. Because he finishes this by saying, what you have spoken is actually true. So he's affirming her truth telling in this. But what he has done is he's actually revealed he has a greater knowledge and more intimate knowledge of who she is, the pains and hurt and history of her life. It is something Jesus also does with Nathaniel in chapter one. So in Nathaniel in chapter one is in, under a fig tree, he's reading scripture and Philip comes and says, hey, I think we have found the guy who is the Messiah. And Philip goes and meets Jesus. And Jesus is like, I saw you and I knew you when you were under the fig tree. I know information about you that I shouldn't know, which makes Nathaniel go, oh, wait, who are you? And it has the same kind of effect on this Samaritan woman where she goes, oh, I see you're a prophet. So she has kind of moved on to you have a different sort of insight into the reality of life. And because of that, she goes straight to the core issue that is on the table, the division between people groups. Who is the authentic people of God? Is it us who worship on Mount Gerizim? Or is it you people who worship in Jerusalem? 
and Jesus leans in, right? Salvation is going to come from the Jews, but an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't remove himself from the Jewishness of who he is and from the roots of who he is and from the scriptures that provide the story that he belongs to. But he does point to something new that is getting ready to happen. And she sees that. He's like, really? Something brand new we haven't seen is about to happen. So we've been expecting a Messiah. Is that you? And John, in his connection to the book of Exodus, who likes to repeat I am statements, which harkens back to the name of God, Yahweh, this is Jesus's first I am statement in the Gospel of John, and it is made to this Samaritan woman. And I love this because the context now tells us in this time when everyone's thinking about redemption and Passover, we have a woman coming in the noonday sun and seeing who Jesus is and believing that he is who he says that he is. And she goes and becomes the first apostle to the Samaritan people. She goes and tells them, come and see which is the exact same thing Philip told Nathaniel in chapter one. You come and see. I can bear witness to what I have heard, but now it is you who should come and see. And I just, I become more and more, um, I don't know, very fond of this story for several reasons. I sit often at Gerizim at the Samaritan temple or down at Jacob's well, which is still there in a church and love telling the story and thinking about this story and thinking about what does it mean to us if John has spent an entire chapter looking at this question of who actually are God's people. It's those who follow this woman's example. John is not skirting around the fact that we have all kinds of narratives in life and that life is ruled by sin and death and it creates heartache and hurt. But John is also going to say there's a model of discipleship that no matter who you are and what kind of context you come after or come out of, you too can become a disciple of Jesus. And we see this woman, we see a progression in her that I think is a really interesting model for all of us because she questions and she probes the words of Jesus. And then she grows in understanding and then she becomes a witness. And she is witnessing not to like, this is the transformation that happened in my life, but she's a witness to the identity of Jesus and calls people to come and see who Jesus is. And they do, and Jesus stays in this place for two more days. There's something beautiful to me. I think when we take all of these assumptions out, all these characteristics about her that we read into the text, and we read it contextually, it opens up this opportunity for us to see so much more about what discipleship looks like. And if we look at the effects of her discipleship and her witness, her entire town comes out to see Jesus and to offer hospitality to Jesus. 
Jesus's own disciples go into town to get food and they come back with no one else, just them. There's something remarkable about the way that she can witness to her own people. And it's a little bit the way the demoniac man in last week's sermon, the guy in the Decapolis could go back to the Decapolis and have the right kind of voice to speak into his own community. And there's something so incredibly beautiful when we start to think about discipleship of recognizing we all have our own context. We all have our group of people that we know the language of those mathematicians, of those engineers, of those medical doctors, of those business people. You are the right voice to go and yes, say this is the transformation that's happened in my life. But the real job is just to point people to Jesus and say, come and see what you think. Will you pray with me? Holy God, there is something beautiful about the fact that you are so persistent in engaging the human narrative. And as society change and people change and generations come and go, your heart is to show yourself to your people And this, when Jesus comes and is the perfect kind of embodiment of who you are and the type of design you have for your kingdom, we see the way that he goes and he grabs unlikely people and he engages them in a purposeful and authentic level and invites them to see who he is and sends them out to be witnesses for him. And I just pray that for those of us that are here, part of Resurrection Church, that this becomes part of our calling, that we too can learn from the Samaritan woman and we too can go out this week and become witnesses to who you are and invite people to come and see. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.